preaching of God's Word is in Matthew 6 and at verse 11. Matthew 6 and at verse 11. Again, in the midst of the Lord's Prayer, we come to the fourth petition, which is, Give us this day our daily bread. It is, again, that we see the great wisdom and balance that God provides us when in His Word He gives us this guide and directory for prayer. It is not exhaustive in every detail, but it is comprehensive in touching upon all the things, in essence, that we could bring before the Lord. He's rightly guided us to desire those things which more intimately touch upon the glory of God first. And so it is, we've seen, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And yet in doing so, notice, it's not just directly regarding God, but his kingdom, the church. And so we're praying for God's glory and the advance and the well-being of his kingdom and of his will. And now he brings us to consider our earthly needs in one simple petition. So verse 11, Christ helps us to think about and to request the Lord's provision to our earthly needs. Notice, just looking ahead, that verses 12 and 13, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation, touch upon our spiritual needs in this world. So there's a shift of focus from the things which are more intimately associated with God and His kingdom to those things that are more intimately associated with ourselves, both in this world, as regards our physical and earthly needs, and our spiritual needs as well. You'll notice now verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. What a simple petition. And it's telling that there's one petition, so simply put, that touches upon all of the earthly concerns for our necessities. Notice this language of bread. It is, even today, the most basic, as it were, most fundamental uh, means of nourishment. In the Scripture, it's several times called the staff of bread. So what does famine do? Famine removes that staff, that support upon which our bodies rely. It is, in other words, indicative and illustrative of all that is necessary for our outward health, strength, and well-being. And so in using such an emblem, bread, this basic provision, it not only harkens back to the manna, which was daily provided, which was a form of bread, but it also reminds us of the basics regarding our necessities. So, children, you can think of it this way. It doesn't read, give us this day our daily dessert. It doesn't say, give us this day our daily sweets. Rather, Christ is teaching us to focus on the main thing. Give us this day our daily bread, what is needed for our bodies. This, of course, opens up many things that the Scriptures elsewhere address. But notice as well that it's not just give us this day bread for the week or for the month or for the year, or even for two days' time. But give us this day our daily bread. And the language daily bread means that portion allotted to us for the day. It's similar as we saw in Exodus 16, that God said, I will give to them a portion, a measured out way for them to have 
their daily provision. There was a certain rate that was to be given to each one, one omer for each individual in the household. And such was measured out day by day for the people. And we're taught to pray, give us today, today's portion. Which, brethren, already, if we can understand this much, if nothing else were said, we would see how liberal God has been to each of us. For who here could honestly say they have only had for the past week, each day successively, that provision and nothing more? We've had canned goods, our refrigerators, our pantries have different things and so on. They may not be as stocked as some, but surely they have more than just the day's provision. And yet God is teaching us to look to that simple day's provision and to request the same for Him. What Christ is getting at is that Christians are to seek their every earthly and daily need from their Heavenly Father that day. This doesn't mean that there's not a place to have surplus. We see that elsewhere in the Scriptures. It's not condemning having a, you know, canned goods in your pantry or refrigerator with certain things and other things of that sort. These things aren't wrong. Paul himself said, I've learned to be content with nothing and with much. I've learned how to live when I have a surplus. I've learned how to live when I have nothing. But what Christ is teaching us in our orientation to the earthly needs before us is to see that the Lord has promised to provide us all that we need. And if and when He provides us more, well, we thank God for that. We enjoy that. But if He provides us only the day's portion, we end the day with gladness. Thank You, Lord, for Your provision of what You've promised. And when we think of it this way, we see, of course, there's not really more that we need. You don't need two days' provision. Now, it's comforting to us in our present life, and we get panicked if we open the refrigerator and nothing's in there. We get panicked if we open the pantry and we see nothing there. But what God's getting at is, if that were the case, there's still no reason for the Christian to panic because we've been taught to approach our Heavenly Father with the day's needs, assured that He will provide us as He has promised. So consider then three things. Firstly, our needs. Secondly, measuring out our needs. And thirdly, the meeting of our needs. Our needs themselves, measuring out of those needs, and the meeting of our needs. So firstly then, our needs. You'll notice that in the petition, give us this day our daily bread, Christ is directing our attention to our daily needs. And this is helpful for us to consider. Christ opens this up as we intimated earlier when He says in verse 25, take no thought for your life what you shall eat, shall drink, or what you shall put on. And in doing that, pointing out these three things, he's identified three fundamental necessities for earthly life. When you think about what a human body needs, set aside everything else, what it simply needs. It's food and water and shelter, at least in the most basic form of clothing. It can include, of course, a shelter so constructed to protect us from more extreme elements, but if we have 
clothing sufficient, food sufficient, and water sufficient, our actual earthly needs are met. Of course, Christ takes this up again. And he assures us, as he says that, verse 33, as you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things shall be added unto you. What are the things? Notice he mentions those things in verse 31. Take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? And so Christ is saying, here's what the needs are. And it's understandable if we divorce our souls from the promises of God and His generosity, His goodness, it's understandable that men would panic when they don't see any clear way for their food, drink, and clothing needs to be met. We're not talking about the building of a luxurious wardrobe. We're not talking about the stockpiling of food in our pantries. And we're not talking about some endless supply of fresh water. We're simply talking about not seeing the next day's provision. It's understandable for us to see that and start to entertain anxiety, care, and panic if we separate what God has said from our souls. So notice then our needs. What happens if we don't have food? We starve. What happens if we don't have water? We come to be thirsty and we die of thirst. If we don't have clothing, we get exposed and we are in significant trouble. So you think about survival uh, aspects. Of course, there's breathing that has to take place. So there's a law of threes as they speak of it. So three minutes without oxygen and you're in trouble, right? If you go three days without water, you're in trouble. If you go... um, Three weeks without food, you're in trouble, right? These are simple things. And so in survival aspects, they teach you to prioritize. Well, one thing, whatever else is happening, if you don't have food, drink, or anything else, you have to breathe, right? That's first and foremost. But so long as you're breathing, you have to secure water. You have to have pure water set up. So you build a fire, you start boiling water, whatever else. These things happen. If you have water, then you need to focus on getting food, right? This is basic. It's instinctive to us because our bodies actually need it. Now, for a moment, notice this. What our bodies actually don't need is some chai latte from some coffee house. And we actually need to push back against that kind of language. Where we start saying, I need that. I don't need this fancy dinner. I don't need those things. What we're saying is I would like that. I want that. It would be helpful for me. I might you know, be glad if I have it. But we should secure that language of need for its proper sphere. I need water. I need food. I need shelter. These are things that are actual needs. And they're daily needs. You can eat at a feast, and yet the next day, you'll have to eat again. It doesn't matter how much you eat on one day. That can't be continued. That one meal can't sustain you apart from miraculous intervention of the Lord. So these things come up again and again and again. Think of it this way. In the depth of winter, 
What good does it do if last night you were protected in a building and it got below freezing, and the next night you think, well, I was in the building last night, I was sheltered, therefore tonight I'm not going to be in the shelter. You would be, of course, instantly greeted with uh, freezing temperatures, which would, of course, affect your body adversely. So these actual needs are daily and recurring. You can't drink as much water as you want one day and expect to live off of that water for a long season. You can't stock up on all sorts of food and expect to live out the year because you ate and gorged yourself upon all of this food. These are daily, constant, recurring needs. And so Christ says, our daily bread. Just before we press on, let's emphasize the significant difference between needs rightly considered, and wants rightly considered. There's a world of difference between sustaining food and a luxurious feast. There's a place for feasting. The Scriptures allow that. But we ought to see that a feast is not necessary. Food is necessary. Food sufficient to give us the calories and the nutrition that our bodies need to carry on, function well, and fulfill our various callings. There's a significant difference, of course, between sufficient clothing so that we can, not only with modesty, but with propriety, go about our work and live in our uh, appropriate climate and these kinds of things, versus a luxurious wardrobe that provides us multiple changes of clothes and allows us all manner and sorts of different occasions. There's a significant difference. And when Christ is getting at our daily bread, purposely using this lowly and yet fundamental source of nutrition, He's pointing us in the direction of saying what we seek and what God has promised is that our needs will be met. He nowhere promises that we'll have lives of luxury. He nowhere promises that these things will just be beyond the world's ability to comprehend in this life. Notice, for instance, this wise prayer as it is recorded in the book of Proverbs and chapter 30, which gives us an insight to the reason we ought to pray for a competent portion, as our catechism puts it, of what the Lord has promised to provide. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 8. Here, We read, remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. And notice the Hebrew is of my allowance. What is allotted to me for the portion that is needed for me. And why? Why not poverty or riches? Lest I be full by the riches and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Do you know what happens when luxury sweeps across the civilization? Men and women start to think, We're okay. We don't really need God. And we see that in our culture. It's not a coincidence that in our culture there's this flamboyant sort of Uh, uh, bravado that comes out of sort of mocking God because as a civilization, 
we are richly blessed with outward things. Even the poorest in our society have the ability to have daily food, daily water, daily shelter. They may or may not take advantage of that, but it's there for the poorest in our world. It doesn't mean that there aren't difficulties and hardships and struggles and prices increase and uh, you know the value of a dollar decreases, it seems, by time. But when we step back and we see what we have, really most of our grumblings that come up are not because we don't see a way for our needs being met, it's because we don't see a way for our comforts and our you know, uh, accustomed luxuries being continued. That's what pokes us. That's what pricks us. So long as the world sees that before them, what happens is they don't see their pressing need for God. And that's why the, in Proverbs they're saying, you know, don't give me riches. Because a temptation that comes is that I'll trust in myself and my resources and say I've got it under control. But don't give me poverty because then my temptation will be to steal. So give me what is needed for my portion that I may then both trust you and serve you accordingly. Notice these needs being met are before us in the book of Philippians in chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Here Paul writing to the Philippians uh, says as follows. Philippians chapter 4 and there at verse 11. As he's exhorting the Philippians to give and support the ministry, he says, not that I speak in respect of want. I'm not saying you should give because I'm lacking. He says, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. So we can use this and see, though the words of Agur in Proverbs 30 tell us, you know, we shouldn't desire riches and we shouldn't, as it were, think, well, we can handle poverty. That if the Lord abounds toward us in riches, there is a way for us to learn to be content. And if the Lord should take from us an abundance, there is a way for us to be content. What is that way? Verse 13 tells us, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That's the answer. Next time you're watching an athletic event, you see some athlete with this verse plastered on their face, their shoe, their sleeve, whatever else, realize this, that's an abuse of God's Word. They may be the darling of the Christian world and saying, well, at least he professes Christ. Well, he may be professing Christ, may in fact be a true believer. He's not using God's Word rightly. Because this word has nothing to do with about athletic prowess and skill and ability. It has everything to do with godly living in the extremes of wealth and want. And that's a lesson that isn't on the athletic field. That's a lesson in the school of adversity and of advantage. How it is that we can live trusting God in those seasons is only solely by the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice 1 Timothy and chapter 6. We have it in verse 8. Paul says again, having food and raiment. The word raiment means clothing. 
Let us therewith be content. Let me ask you for a moment. Do you have food today? And do you have clothing today? Because if you have those two things, Paul says, then you should be content. You shouldn't be worried. Shouldn't be anxious. Shouldn't be, you know, moving your thumbs about, twiddling them, you're mindless and starting to, as it were, lose your uh, uh, cool and wonder. I, don't, I can't see into tomorrow. I can't, see, I can't see into 10 years from now. God's Word says, if you have food and you have clothing, your needs are met, your God is faithful, and you have every reason to be content. So our needs. Notice then, secondly, measuring these needs. What are our needs? How much should we measure out? Christ answers that when He focuses our thoughts upon this day. Give us this day what? Not our bread. Not bread sufficient for the week. Not bread sufficient for three days, two days or so on. But give us today our daily bread. Brethren, I can't speak from experience in this. I don't know what it's like to have merely a day's portion and no sign of anything else before me. But there are Christians who can. Paul was one of them. The apostles were. Christ Himself was one who said, listen, you know, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests. I don't have a place where to lay my head. Most likely, you're not like they are. You're more like I am where you've always had at least some length measured out beyond the day's provision. Well, Christ is helping us to see our petition is not focused on the length laid out down the road, but is rather focused on the length laid out for the actual day. And it's doing several things. It's helping us to remember that what we need is strength to serve God today. For our chief calling is to glorify God and enjoy Him. We don't need a ton of food to do that today. In order to serve Him today in our calling, we simply need the food, the water, the clothing that's needed for our day's service now. We may, quote, need that if we want to impress others or we want more comforts, but we don't actually need that for what is truly necessary. So the Lord is focusing our petition on the day. Right now, doubtlessly in our homes, we have food for perhaps three days a week. Who knows? More than that, perhaps as well. Or we have bank accounts that have provision for months, maybe years down the road. None of that's sinful. But none of that is the goal of the Christian life. None of that is indeed what the Christian is to set up as a number one priority. The number one priority that is, as it were, governing this petition is what precedes this petition. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now with that in mind, think of what Christ says again. When He says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Listen to that language. His kingdom and His righteousness. What is the prayer opening with? His kingdom and His righteousness. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
Notice the connection. Christ is orienting us to consume our soul's attention with the things of God's kingdom and His righteousness so that the day's provision is secondary. Lord, if You give me what is needed today, that's all I need because my focus is upon serving You. My focus is upon advancing Your cause. That's my focus. I don't need to worry about my cause because I don't have a cause fundamentally beyond Your cause. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, what are those things? Food, drink, clothing, notice the guarantee, shall be added unto you. We start to see this connection. We start to see how it's not a lack of fulfilling when God brings the end of life to one, but rather it's actually God saying, your work in my kingdom is finished. And so you don't need anything anymore. It's time for you to die. Whether that's through illness or tragic circumstance, the Lord brings it to an end because the purpose of our life in this world is finished, concluded. So there's no longer need for food, drink, water, etc. The daily provision is so that we in our earthly bodies with our earthly souls would then be able to fulfill our calling for that day. That's why Christ goes on to say, take therefore no thought for the morrow. You know what happens when we consume ourselves with thoughts of the morrow? We start getting consumed with earthly concerns and the way to get to those earthly concerns and then what becomes secondary is what's actually primary. Seeking first the kingdom of God. But if we say, we open our pantry and say, I've got my food for the day. Full steam ahead with serving the Lord. Period. That's the orientation of the Christian life. It's a focused petition, both upon our earthly needs for the day, but the purpose of those earthly needs, which is that as a husband, we would love our wives and serve them. As a wife, we would submit to our husbands and serve them. And all of the other circumstances at our work, that we would have strength to serve the Lord. In our relationships, we would have strength to serve the Lord. And so long as the Lord provides those things to us, then we have all that we need to serve Him. And we're content. That's why Paul is able to say, I am able to do all these things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. So notice the focus is upon the current day and thus the current need. And you can imagine, again, for most of us, if not all of us, we have to imagine it only because we don't know it by experience. But you can imagine opening up and seeing Really, there's a cup of milk for me, there's a loaf of bread for me, and there's a little bit of fruit for me that will only last today. And we can imagine that, and we would start to entertain the thought, what am I going to do about tomorrow? But the Lord is saying, if you have that, I've answered your need, now get on with serving me. Now as we'll see, this doesn't mean that workers don't work, and that we don't put in an honest day's job and service, but that even that is a means of fulfilling our calling in serving the Lord and by which He provides us means for the next day's daily bread. But we do focus on the current day and its need 
that we may then focus on the current day and our calling. Notice, moreover, we measure this not just to ourselves, but the whole prayer is corporate. Give us this day our daily bread. This is something that can help us who have far more than a daily allowance in food, drink, and clothing. Because we have brothers and sisters who don't. And we're not just taught to say, give me this day my daily bread, but we're also interceding on behalf of our brothers and sisters. This is where it's helpful for us to become acquainted with brothers and sisters who literally don't see the next day's provision. It helps us to remember that there are brothers and sisters who are in circumstances far inferior to our own regarding earthly things that do not have water in their home where they can turn on a faucet and water comes. They do not have a pantry with food unspoiled. They do not have a refrigerator that keeps their food for days, perhaps weeks, and so on. They have and are living by this daily thing. And so we think, well, how am I going to pray this sincerely? There are ways that we can pray about it for ourselves, but it also expands us to remember our brothers and sisters in other places. Give us, who is the us? It's all God's people. Give unto us, your people, our daily bread. We do remember ourselves, of course. We're not saying remember, give to them their daily bread. We're saying us, in which we're included. But we're also remembering our brethren who have less than we do and are seeking their provision as well as ours. So it's not just measuring for our day, but it's also measuring for our brethren's day. And we remember them before the throne. By the way, this should multiply thanksgivings in our lives, as well as when you think about this, in the countless ways and instances that God answers this in the lives of our brothers as we pray for them day by day. Well, thirdly, then, the meeting of our needs. This is important, especially in a land of plenty, to notice that the provider of these needs is the one to whom we pray. Notice verse 9, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven. Who is it that has given you every morsel of food that has ever entered your mouth? Who is it that has given you any droplet of water or other fluids to quench your thirst? Who is it that has provided you with every single article of clothing that has ever been upon your body? Who is it that has put over your head a roof and beside you walls and protected you from the elements and provided you with comforts galore? Who is it but your Heavenly Father who has cared for you? This is where, of course, the temptation that is mentioned in Proverbs 30 comes and says, if I be rich, I'll be tempted to deny God. I'll be tempted to say, I don't need God. And that's easy to do as sinful creatures when we have all of these things around us, unless we force ourselves to see that every single thing we've ever enjoyed for our needs, for our comforts, for our wants, has been meted out to us by our Heavenly Father. It's our Father in Heaven. But this also helps us when we're in seasons of want. We're not going to God as some distant deity that is, as it were, unconcerned with us. 
but we're approaching our Father in heaven. This has been the comfort of the missionary on the front line in uh, adverse circumstances where they literally do not see how they're going to have their next meal. You can read of the life of George Mueller and his wife as they raised up orphans and so on. And there were literally seasons in their life when they had hundreds of orphans waiting upon them and they had just fed with their last meal those mouths which are now going to bed and guess what's going to happen six hours, eight hours later. They're going to wake up and their stomachs are going to be growling and they're going to need food and they say, we don't have any more food. Not just for us. We don't have any more food for the dozens and even hundreds of orphans that are under our care. You can read of these things and you can start to engage and enter into the circumstances that can, as it were, provoke panic and provoke frustration. But in the life of men and women of faith, it promoted prayer. Well, this is what we'll do. We'll go to our Father in Heaven who cares for us. This, of course, is the fundamental assurance to believers. Paul tells us to cast our care upon the Lord. Why? Because He cares for us. That's founded and rooted in this relationship. It's our Father in heaven. We opened with this consideration. It's the intimacy of Him who is our Father, and yet the transcendence that it's our Father who is in heaven, who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, who calls out the stars by name, who sustains our every moment of existence by His divine power. There is nothing too hard for Him. And so you read these biographies and you at times have to put the book down and say, my faith is as if it were no faith compared to the faith of these men and women who trusted the Lord in circumstances that you and I know little, if anything, about. But what it is fundamentally they knew is what Christ presents to us. We call upon Him, yes, who's God, and thus Almighty, and able to do all His holy will. But our God, who is our Father, and thus loves us, and is intimately concerned for our good. He remembers that we are dust. And so He remembers our frame and provides to us what He has promised. Our provider is our God in heaven, reconciled to us by the blood of Christ in accordance to His loving purpose to save us. Well, what is the ground or the cause for His meeting these our needs? Have you ever been struck by single words in Scripture? Here's one that ought to strike us. It's the word give. It's astounding, isn't it, that Christ doesn't preface it with the word please. Like we correct our children about this. If a child walks into our presence and says, give me food, we say, you know, you can stop and try asking that again. How about please give me food? They come in and they run in, they're sweating, they're panting, give me a drink. And we say, you can go back out and come back in with a different attitude. Now, of course, that's because embedded in that is presumption many times. But it's astounding to us that the word that Christ gives is rightly translated here simply as give. It's not 
here's I'm, I'm going to purchase something or it's certainly not I deserve it or anything beyond that. It's I have no other ground to point to but that you are one who freely gives. It's an astounding testimony. It holds forth the freedom and the mercy of God in so generously providing us what we need. And this is, of course, the only word that we could use. We can't use reward me. We can't use give me what I deserve. Because if we did those things in the strictest of just, uh, strictness of judgment, the Lord would give unto us damnation. Think of that language. You know, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, we didn't eat of the fruit, but we're guilty of that sin in Adam as our representative. We sinned in him. We fell with him in Adam's first transgression. And you and I have sinned in ways that we can't even number. And yet we still come to God, who is the provider of all things, and we ask, I who have sinned, I come in need of what only you can provide. And I say, give me this daily food. The ground, the cause, is simply and solely God's great mercy to us. Well, the Lord doesn't answer this, but it's worth seeing the connection, the means that God uses to provide this provision of food is firstly and mainly by means of health and labor. Notice in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3, just to see the connection in Scripture. 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3. So how is it that God meets our needs? Well, it's by His grace, as He loves us and cares for us, freely given. But it is, He preeminently uses the means of our health and labor. So when we ask, give us this day our daily bread, embedded in that is, give me health so I can work. Give me strength so I can labor. Notice in verses, in 2 Thessalonians 3 and at verse 7, Paul is addressing this fact that as apostles, though we were able to receive finances from you and do nothing but that, he says in verse 7, you yourselves know how you ought to follow us For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power or authority, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat." What a slap in the face to many in our nation. If you're not going to work, you have no right to eat. If you're an able-bodied person, get a job and work. That's not cruel. It's not hard. It's not harsh. It's the simple way that God has ordered our lives. That if we are able-bodied, then we're to work. And as we work and labor, and then we procure wages and then we purchase food, what has God done? He's given us the strength, the opportunity, and the means then to receive our daily bread for then strength for another day's service to His name. So the preeminent way whereby the Lord answers this is by strengthening us and giving us the opportunity to serve by means of work. And labor. Notice the Proverbs are full of all manner of reproofs against the slothful. Well, like, you know, there's a bear outside, or 
it's too cold or it might rain on my field today. Notice for one example among them, Proverbs 13 and verse 4. The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. And so the one who sits back and does nothing, well, he wants a lot, she wants a lot, but doesn't get because they're not working, which is God's ordinary way of meeting these needs. But the soul of the diligent is not only getting their needs met, but often has a surplus so that they're strong and healthy and so on. So one preeminent means is the Lord's providing of strength and ability to work. But also, even as Paul is exhorting in 2 Thessalonians for the supply and raising up of support, it's also in seasons where there is affliction that others charitably support through their gifts. This is not charity to those who otherwise could work and labor. This is charity to those who are persecuted, who literally have no way of getting a job. They're legally forbidden to get a job. They're thrown into prison. Men are cast away and their wives are left essentially as widows and have no means of supply. And so Paul raises up support in the Lord's provision and finances come in. And this, of course, you see in the book of Acts when there was the feeding of the widows and so on at the hands of the deacons. The apostles saw this. The ministers of the Word saw this and said, you know, we can't forego our calling to pray and preach. But this can't go unmet. And so we see the diaconate established to establish the charitable support in the church of those in need. And certainly there are more immediate and even as recorded in Scripture, miraculous provision. For instance, Elijah is uh, chastened and is forbidden of doing certain things and God brings him to a brook. And there the brook supplies water And the Lord brings a raven who brings bread, it's an astounding statement, from off the king's table. Could you imagine that? Here's Elijah basically in exile and in hiding. And the king, who is his great persecutor, has food in a famine. The raven would snatch the bread off the king's table and bring it to Elijah to eat. The Lord is able to do all of these things still. Well, brethren, as we come to our end One thing that we see is we see much of God. Remember, all of this is in the context of prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. It shows us His wealth. Can you imagine for a moment, we don't know how many, but just imagine for a moment, as much as you're able, how many Christians throughout the world every day wake up and in one way or another are asking this, give us this day our daily bread. Do you remember when Moses was there initially leaving Egypt and all of the people are coming to him with different cases and Jethro, his father-in-law, looks at this and says, this is too much for you. You're going to die. You're going to be you know, worn out. If the Lord would grant it, you should seek that others would be established to help with these lesser cases, etc. Well, imagine this for a moment, that you are established as the solitary provider of every single person's daily allowance, and instantly you become overwhelmed. Some of us can't handle three children, five children, six children. How can we handle millions of children? And yet, consider the wealth and ability of God 
not only to know all of those particular needs, but to have the ability so to order the universe as to provide for every single one of those needs every single day of the year without fail. There is no wealth like unto God's. No strength like unto God's when we see and consider that He meets all the needs of all of His people every single day. Moreover, what mercy there is. And we need look no further place than the mirror to see how merciful He is to provide us such things as we receive. Who among us as His children with any integrity would say, I deserve my daily portion? Because I can remember praying previous days, Lord, help me, I'll turn from this sin, only to turn back to that sin. And yet we still each day come to God and say, please provide me what my body needs. Even though there's a record of imperfect faithfulness in our lives. And yet, as He did with Israel, so He does with you and with me. And He provides what our bodies need for the day. It shows us much of God, His wealth, His ability, His mercy. It also gives us hope, especially when we are in adverse and difficult circumstances. Now, it may be that we may not be among the poorest in the world. Certainly, there's not one in America who could be likened unto that, but we may be relatively poor. We may be struggling. We may have lost our job and whatever else that doesn't mean. It does mean we don't foresee how it is we're going to make ends meet as we say it. But whatever we need, what are we to do? Well, here's what we're not to do, ever. We're never to be anxious. Realize that? Anxiety is a signal to us that our faith is weak. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have cause to say, oh, this is something that's a concern. But it's as Paul says in verse 6 of Philippians 4, be careful, we would translate that today, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You say, well, I don't know what life is like if you take anxiety from me. I'll tell you what it'll be like. It'll be like a life of prayer. Prayer replaces anxiety for the Christian. Prayer looking to a Heavenly Father who loves us, who is reconciled to us by the blood of Christ. It forbids anxiety if we realize God in heaven is our God in heaven if we trust that our God in heaven is our Heavenly Father who loves us, if we realize He has promised that He will indeed provide all that is needed for our every day, well, this then should liberate us to focus on the main thing. Seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Brethren, we cannot close without noting how faithful God has been to each of our lives. There have been seasons where we've looked forward and we say, even in our circumstances, I don't know how it's going to work. And we get past those circumstances and we can say, God knew 
and God met every need. And there will be times when we'll look forward even in our circumstances and say, I don't know how it's going to work. But God will be faithful in those circumstances as He's been faithful in the past. Well, the more we live, the more record there is in our own lives of His faithfulness, which requires thanksgiving. Isn't it instructive that Paul puts this together? Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. How many days have you lived? It's not hard to figure out. Take up the total of years, multiply that 365, you've got the number of days you've lived. Every one of those days is a testimony in your life. We're not talking about back in the record of Holy Scripture in Egypt. We're not talking about the journey of the wilderness. We're not talking about the land of exile. We're talking about your concrete, personal life. You have that many days' testimony that God is faithful. Personal to you. Why would we hesitate to trust Him for today and when we awaken tomorrow for that day and if the Lord spares us again that day and onward. There's nothing, isn't it interesting, but goodness and mercy following me all the days of my life. And if that's the case, because the Lord is my shepherd, then I can say with assurance that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is faithful. Let us trust Him. Would you stand with me for prayer?